So this summer, for those of you that have been around and those of you that haven't, we have been exploring parables. And parables are short stories that are told using these relatable concepts to make a point. And Jesus told a lot of parables, and they are brilliant. But the particular details of the parables were relatable in a first century setting. And though the meaning and the point and the purpose of the parable is just as significant for us today, the challenge for us is to understand the context in order to understand the punch packed into this story. Would you join with me in prayer before we read scripture together? God, I thank you that you helped Luke to remember this story and this encounter. And God, we know that you have uh, truth for us to understand better. And so I pray that you would help us to understand something new and afresh and maybe for the first time. God, would you help us to understand, know, and live the life to which this encounter points. For we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. So our passage this morning is Luke chapter 10, uh, 25 to 37. And Luke, again, is one of the gospels or one of the stories that tells the account of Jesus' life. So Luke 10, 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Well, this might be the most well-known of all Jesus' parables. And the term Good Samaritan has made its way into our modern context. In Canada, we have a law called the Good Samaritan Law, which legally protects people who help others in distress. And on Instagram, ever the sign of it being in the culture, there are over 64,000 posts with the hashtag Good Samaritan. So the challenge for any of us who are very familiar with this story is to take a step back and let it surprise us the way it shocked the first listeners. And if this story is new to you, you're already in a good spot. This parable is bookended by an interaction with Jesus that Jesus has with an expert in the law. And this interaction adds much more significance to what might just sound like a nice story. So let's take a look at the structure of the passage we just read. So first of all, a question, the lawyer asks a question. He, and then Jesus responds by asking him another question. 
Then the lawyer answers Jesus' first question, and finally Jesus comes around to answering the first question that the lawyer asked. And then the second section, the lawyer asks the follow-up question, who is my neighbor? And this time Jesus responds by telling a parable, but at the end of the parable, Jesus asks his own question. The lawyer responds to that question, and then Jesus answers the lawyer's neighbor question. So this morning we're going to begin by looking at that first interaction, and then we'll get into the significance of the story, the parable that Jesus tells, and then we'll bring it all together by digging into the interaction that follows the parable. So the man who asks this question is an expert in the law, and that means he would have studied in depth and likely memorized portions of the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible that contain the law that was given through Moses. He would know these books way better than any of us know our Bibles today. It's hard to know exactly what the motive is for this man. Luke tells us that he wanted to test Jesus. Was he trying to trick Jesus into saying something that could be used against him? Or did he want to see what this new rabbi was all about? Whatever his intent, he's trying to figure out where the lines are. What must I do to inherit eternal life? His very question is a contradiction. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You don't do anything to inherit something. Inheritance is about being in relationship to another. It's about receiving, not earning. And look at how Jesus answers him in his own language, directing him to what he knows best, the law. What is written there, he asks. Now, there are a number of answers that this guy could give perhaps something from the Ten Commandments, but his answer intrigues me. He uses the same summary that Jesus himself has used as recorded on at least a couple of occasions. For instance, Mark chapter 12, verses 29 to 31, Jesus is asked, which is the most important commandment? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, we don't know if the lawyer has heard this summary from Jesus before or not, but we do know he gives a good answer. Jesus says, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. So that could have been the end of the interaction, but do you see what Jesus has done here? The man asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, the answer is, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, yeah, that's it. If you can do that, you'll be fine. But who can do that? That's the point. No one can do that. No one can love the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, strength, and love their neighbor as themselves. It's not possible. Jesus shows the fallacy of asking what you need to do by highlighting it as an impossible task. So he's just given this insurmountable task, and the guy says, okay, so who is my neighbor? It's like Jesus has just said, all you have to do is jump over this building. And the guy goes, okay, so uh, how tall is the building? It doesn't really matter. You can't jump over the building no matter how tall it is. So do we throw our hands in the air and give up knowing it's impossible? No, just the contrary. First, we accept that this eternal life that he asks about is grace, not accomplished, but inherited, not earned, 
but received. And then in grace and freedom, we see how high the bar is set, and we rely on God to help us aim, live aiming for that bar. It's like someone gave you a gold medal for high jump without doing any jumping. You have a gold medal for high jump, but you're not really a high jumper. Now, the same person that gave you the medal says, let me help you learn how to jump. Do you take the medal and run, or learn to high jump and live as a medal-winning high jumper? Some of you have heard me talk about this term, eternal life, before. And bear with me as I jump back on my soapbox. But to me, understanding this is so important. Sometimes when we hear the term eternal life, we think that's just about what happens to us when we die. And indeed, one of the two original Greek words does mean without beginning and end, that which always has and always will be. So there is an everlasting component. But the second word, the Greek word for life here is zoe. In Greek, there are actually a number of different words for life. There's bios for biological life, physical life. There's psyche, which is your thoughts and ideas about life, your frame of mind. And zoe is the eternal, divine life of God. It is abundant life, the fullness of life, life as it was meant to be. It is a qualitative form of life, describing a quality of life rather than a quantity. That means that this life is not simply limited to something we get to experience when we die, but something we can experience now. So let's back up again. The lawyer says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the answer to having this full, abundant life as it was meant to be, divine life from God, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Not because that's how you earn it, because that is it. When we love God and our neighbor like that, we are experiencing, we are living the abundant, full, divine life as we were meant to live it. It's not what we have to do in order to have eternal life. Loving God and neighbor is that Zoe life. Looking back to the lawyer's follow-up question, who is my neighbor, we see again that he's missing the whole point. It's not about what's the least I can do and get eternal life, what's the minimum grade required to pass. As Kenneth Bailey writes, with a careful line drawn between those who are and are those who are not his neighbors, the lawyer would be equipped to earn his way to eternal life. Okay, but which people do I have to love? Who's my neighbor? So Jesus tells a story. We're going to hear it again. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So traveling in the first century was a dangerous endeavor, and the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is a 17-mile stretch that is rocky with many twists and turns and lots of places for people to hide, making it 
it making it an extremely dangerous journey. That is clearly the case for the man that is violently beaten, robbed, and left for dead. Then a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan walk into a bar. Oh, wait, sorry, wrong story. It just sounds so much like the start to a bad joke, doesn't it? So we have three different characters enter the scene. And in Israel at that time, there were three tiers of people who worked in the temple. The priests, the Levites, and the lay people. So the listeners would have expected the pattern of three to go priest, Levite, lay person. And when it wasn't a lay person, but rather a Samaritan, that would have jolted their attention. It was not uncommon for priests to live in Jericho and go up to Jerusalem for their two-week shift at the temple. The priests were descendants of Aaron and offered sacrifices on behalf of the people and performed sacred rites. The Levites from the tribe of Levi served as assistants to the priests, and they had various duties to keep things pure and clean, to open and shut the gates of the temple, to sing sacred hymns, and do a bunch of other things. The layperson would also assist with duties at the temple. So again, for a few of us, we are so used to this story. But what if I told you, hey, there's this guy who was walking near the Hanlon last night, and some guys beat him up really badly and left him there. But amazingly, the next person to come along was a pastor. I know, amazing, right? What are the chances? But when the pastor saw him, he crossed to the other side of the Hanlon. The hero crossed the road. Let's understand this would-be hero a bit better. Now, this was a tough moral dilemma for the priest. The law said that if this man was Jewish, the priest had an obligation to help him. But without his clothes or accent, how would the priest know the nationality of the man? Secondly, if the man turned out to be dead and the priest touched him, that would make him ceremonially unclean. And he would have to perform a cleansing ritual over a one-week period to be declared clean again. The priest had set a precedent, so perhaps the Levite thought he had a clean conscience in also quietly passing by. For these temple officials, it is very important to remain ritually pure. In addition, as we said, this is a very dangerous stretch of road. Who knows if there are robbers still hiding? Maybe this is a trap. Or what if they stop and other bandits show up? There are many good reasons not to help. But as one commentator says, they are preserving their purity at the cost of their obedience to God's law of love. Okay, so the priests pass by on the other side, the Levite pass by on the other side, and then we get to this non sequitur. The audience would have heard it like this, a cat, a dog, and a banana. The third just doesn't fit with the others. And more than not fit, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They shared common ancestors but held to very different beliefs about where the rightful place of worship should be. The Jews thought it was Jerusalem, and the Samaritans maintained that it was Mount Gerizim. And this was a huge deal. Samaritans were a devout religious sect that couldn't understand what seemed to them as sacrilegious practices, and the Jews looked down on the Samaritans like half-breeds or unclean. Neither would associate or eat with one another. N.T. Wright explains it like this. The hatred between Jews and Samaritans had gone on for hundreds of years and is still reflected tragically in the smoldering tension between Israel and Palestine today. Both sides claimed to be the true inheritors of the promise to Abraham and Moses. Both saw themselves as rightful possessors of the land. Few Israelis today will travel from Galilee to Jerusalem by the direct route because it will take them through the West Bank and risk violence. 
When I was in Israel a number of years ago, I saw this firsthand. The two times that we went into Palestine, we could, um, two times we went over into Palestine, and we could only cross because our tour guide was American, our bus driver was Arab, and we were all Canadians. If we had had an Israeli on board, we would not have been allowed to enter. And both times, it was really intense. Crossing through those zones, there was miles of barbed wire and checkpoints and armed lookout towers. Okay, so back to Luke. There's an almost comical scene from the previous chapter in Luke, Luke chapter 9. Jesus sets out from Galilee to Jerusalem, and the most direct route, as we said, would pass through Samaria. So he sends messengers on ahead of him to a Samaritan village to get ready for him. But the Samaritan people did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Remember, the Samaritans believed that the proper place for worship was Mount Gerizim. And if they were heading for Jerusalem, it meant these guys were on the other team, or more accurately, their bitter rivals. So here's the part that makes me laugh, though perhaps it's more tragic than funny. When the disciples heard this, when they heard that they weren't welcome, James and John asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? Don't you love their reaction? They were rude to us. Let's zap them. Jesus simply rebukes the disciples, and they go to another village. But there's a taste of the relationship between Samaritans and Jews. At the first chance, even Jesus' closest friends want to smoke them with fire from heaven. Okay, so along comes a Samaritan. And now listen to all of the verbs that Jesus uses to describe what he does. In contrast to saw and pass by, saw and pass by, the Samaritan came near, saw him, was moved with pity, went to him, bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine, put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him, gave money to the innkeeper to help, will return to the inn, and will pay more to cover any costs. The Samaritan was moved with pity, it says. Now, this is one of my favorite Greek words, shplagnitsomai. Almost, isn't it fun to say, shplagnitsomai? Almost every other time this word is used in the New Testament, it's used to describe Jesus having compassion for someone. And it literally means to be moved from the bowels, like to feel sick with concern, with love and pity. Not only did the Samaritan have shplagnitsumai, but at great cost and risk to himself, he attended to, cared for, and protected the hurt man. Kenneth Bailey points out that given the geography, the inn was likely in a Jewish town, and the Samaritan would have been in tremendous danger even showing up in a Jewish town, let alone showing up with a beaten-up Jewish man and staying there for the night looking after him. Others might have looked for retaliation for the beaten man on this good Samaritan. He risks his life caring for this man, and he promises to come back so that this man is not left indebted, going back to a place he is not welcome with more risk and cost. Make sure the bill is paid for a man who under other conditions might hate him. The Samaritan saw and got involved and it was dirty, costly, and risky. One September when I was working as a campus minister within a varsity at the University of Toronto, 
our student leadership team studied the parable of the great banquet. And we were inspired and excited to go out and reach the students on campus and share hospitality with people like it was shared with the people in the streets and the alleys in that parable. So the first way we wanted to do this was by hosting a barbecue in the middle of campus. We handed out a lot of hamburgers and we got to talk to a bunch of students. And after the barbecue had wrapped up, we were regrouped and were sharing in the success of the event. When we saw these two guys coming along a path near us, carrying a big couch right through the middle of campus. As they got near us, they dropped the couch and plopped down on it in exhaustion in the middle of the grass. I waited for a moment to see if any of the students would notice and then said, hey, maybe these guys need some help. To my surprise, some of the students said, no, I think they're okay. Like the guys had just decided to take their couch for a walk and dump it in a field for fun. And others said, oh, I have a bad back. I went over with another student who was willing to come and we asked if they needed some help. They were delighted but couldn't really believe that we would help as they still had a long way all the way across campus, all the way across Queens Park to go. And we said, no problem. So as we walked, each holding up a corner of the couch, they asked us who we were and why we were willing to help. Now, no sooner had we got back from the couch walk to our group, when along that same path, we saw a pack of guys running, followed by one lone engineering frosh in the traditional purple skin and blue jumpsuit. The first year was trying to reclaim his stolen yellow hard hat, a prized trophy for other students to steal. And just as this horde got in front of us, the frost was thrown to the ground and his glasses flew off. We watched as the pack took off with their prize and this poor guy just starts padding around on the grass looking for his glasses. Again, it was like we were watching something on TV and the group didn't seem to register that we could get involved. But a few of us did go and carefully padded the ground with him till we could return the glasses to the embarrassed freshman. Now these stories remind me of just how reluctant I can be and how we can be to get involved. Whether it's because we are used to consuming what happens in front of us through a screen and therefore not engaging, or whether we have good reasons. They might not need help, or my back hurts, or I don't really know what to do. This parable invites us to see and get involved. So now we come back to that second set of questions. The lawyer asks, after, uh, the lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? And now at the end of the parable, Jesus asks, who is being a neighbor? Notice how the lawyer cannot even bring himself to say Samaritan. Trapped and needing to answer Jesus, he says, the one who showed mercy. And now Jesus says, go and do likewise. It's not who do I have to be a neighbor to, but go and be a neighbor. And being a neighbor here means, as Bailey says, to anyone in need, regardless of language, religion, or ethnicity. And there is something else for us to grasp in here. Jesus essentially asks the lawyer, who is the hero of this story? The hero of this story is unexpected. It surprises the lawyer. A Samaritan? The lawyer and his fellow Jews are not the hero of this story. It would have been more tolerable, though still challenging, if the Samaritan had been hurt and a Jewish man had come to the rescue. But the Samaritan is the hero. The lawyer was not the hero of the story. 
And what if we are not the hero of our story? What if the hero of our story is a surprise? Who is the hero of our story? The first part of our passage, even the lawyer's own words, gives us the answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. If we love God like that, he is the center of our story. He is the hero. And if he is filling up that space, there's no room for us at the center. And maybe the way that we fulfill the second part, to love our neighbor as ourself, is to follow the first part, to be pried off of the center, to have Jesus fill that space, the center of our lives, of ourselves, the hero of our story. And maybe if he is the hero, he takes up that room at the center, and then maybe we will be able to be the neighbors he asks us to be. I was talking through this passage with our summer staff this week, and being the hip, current youth that they are, one of them told me about something that was making its way around TikTok this past year, something called a main character moment. Basically, videos of people doing everyday things as if all eyes were on them, like they were the main character in the movie of their lives. Like, walking through a meadow or pondering by a stream. One clip started like this. You have to start romanticizing your life. You have to start thinking of yourself as the main character. Now, there may be some helpful aspects to this, such as enjoying the beauty in the simple things of life, but this also revealed something about our very nature. The appeal of thinking that we are the main character, the hero at the center of our story. One article from a media site explains it like this. We all crave some confirmation that yes, our lives only seem to be ordinary and unremarkable, but actually they're part of a greater story, the greatest story ever told. Main character memes cut across platforms to unveil the shakiness at the core of our identities, the kind of uncertainty that only a hero's journey can cure. It doesn't matter if we don't know our personal aesthetics, career goals, or genders, all main characters begin their stories as a huge question mark just like us. Not having the answers is fine, as long as the plot keeps moving for the sake of our viewers' entertainment and our own validation. Because if people or corporations or governments are watching, that means we matter. We wake up every morning with the basic understanding that there is a reason for us to keep going, or at least for the show to go on. Now, I find that both exciting and disturbing. So exciting because those questions of identity, of significance, of direction, of purpose, of wanting to matter, those longings are not bad or wrong. Those are gospel things to hunger and thirst for. And for those that are wanting that, there is good news. And the news is that the answer to those is not found in making ourselves the main character as if it all depended on us. The answer is found here in the person of Jesus who loves us and shows us the best way to live. You can have fulfillment to all those things, purpose, direction, significance, identity, meaning, value, and the way to this life, fullness of life, to abundance, peace, and wholeness, Life it was, as it was meant to be, to this eternal Zoe life, is not to see yourself as the main character, but by loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. God and neighbor and me. 
So how do we move ourselves from dead center? Well, that is the journey of a lifetime, and I think it simply starts by asking, saying, help. I want that life you offer. I want that abundant life, that meaning, that purpose, that fullness of life as you intended it. I want you at the center, but would you help? Help me to see you as the hero of my story. Help me to love you with all of my heart, and help me to be a neighbor. We're going to close with a prayer called Pry Me Off Dead Center by Ted Lauder. And this is my challenge, and I invite you to join me in this prayer. O persistent God, deliver me from assuming your mercy is gentle. Pressure me that I may grow more human, not through the lessening of my struggles, but through an expansion of them that will undam me and unbury my gifts. Deepen my heart until I learn to share it and myself openly, and my needs honestly. Sharpen my fears until I name them and release the power I have locked in them and they in me. Accentuate my confusion until I shed those grandiose expectations that divert me from the small, glad gifts of the now and the here and the me. Expose my shame where it shivers, crouched behind the curtains of propriety, until I can laugh at last. Through my common frailties and failures, laugh my way toward becoming whole. Deliver me from just going through the motions and wasting everything I have, which is today a chance, a choice, my creativity, your call. O persistent God, let how much it all matters pry me off dead center. So if I am moved inside to tears or sighs or screams or smiles or dreams, they will be real, and I will be in touch with who I am and who you are and who my sisters and brothers are. Amen.